Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 89 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian, the Fog Elemental Gottlieb. And dude, even I get this one. So we all know what this episode is going to be about. Well, hold on. There, there's two meanings to the Fog Elemental name. It's it's not as simple as it seems at first glance. Is it, I, I don't is it know. that you can Flamekin Harbinger for it? Is it a callback? No, no, no. I'm not shouting out Flamekin Harbinger. I, I do love that card, absolutely. But this is actually about... If you've taken a look outside your window today, all of Seattle is just covered in this thick fog. It's actually smoke from the wildfires. So if I'm a little raspy today, it's because I've been breathing smoke and ash for the last three days now. Yeah, and, it's uh, not great. Yeah, it's definitely, it's it's playing a little havoc on my respiratory system, I got to say. Look, man, we, we going to be all right. Yeah, we'll make it through. I mean, I guess this is the price for like 60 consecutive days of beautiful sunny weather is now we have just fog everywhere. That, that's the That's the trade-off. God, what timing, too, among all this nexus of fate hubbub. It's almost like it was it was destiny. It was meant to be. I don't think so. We'll get into that, though. First things first, we have this auction, this charity auction for uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Our lovely patrons got to vote on where they wanted to see the proceeds from the auction go. And that was basically just like the, the far and away like front runner the entire time. It was, yeah. So that is cool. Definitely a, a worthy cause. There's going to be a lot of swag that both Brian and myself put up that will be going up, I believe, uh, this Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific, lasting for seven days on eBay. And obviously, if you follow us anywhere on social media, we will be posting the details about that, where you can check it out and everything. And even if you can't participate, don't want to participate, but you do want to support us, by all means, like just get the word out, share that stuff. Yeah, I am super happy with what our patrons chose for our charity. Definitely an issue that's close to my heart. Uh, I think this auction is going to be great. I think we're going to get a lot of cool stuff back out into people's hands. We're going to get a bunch of money for charity. Now, if you post something really cool that I like, am I allowed to bid on it? Like, what if you just have the coolest thing ever? And I'm like, I have to have that. Yeah, man, whatever. Uh, I got some stuff that you haven't even seen yet. So I got I got some homies that, that hooked me up, definitely. Okay. I, I might be participating in this auction as well as, uh, you know, helping run it. If, if there's good enough stuff, you got me interested. And, and obviously, I love to give to this charity. So you might be competing with me if you're in the auction queues trying to get some sweet <laughs> swag. What What is your eBay handle so they know? No, no, no. I'm, I'm not giving <laughs> it away. I'm, I'm not going to put it out there. You'll just have to try and figure out if it's me you're competing against. All right. Fair enough. I, I explained the details and everything, but inevitably this happens where someone's like, yo, I, I missed it or I forgot about this. Where is it? Just ask me in real life, social media, whatever. And I will be happy to point you in the right direction for sure. Definitely don't feel bad about doing that. Uh, secondly, we have Grand Prix LA this weekend in which Brian and I will both be in attendance. We will be doing spell slinging starting 
at noon on Friday, which, uh, you know, doesn't really give you a lot of lead in time because presumably this episode is going to be going up Thursday night. But that's the first time that we're going to be doing it together, which I think is going to be rad. I have to say, this might be the thing I'm most nervous about of all the things we've done related to the game podcast. I just have this fear. What if no one wants to play games with me? Like, what if I just sit behind this table by myself and like watch a huge line develop for you while nobody wants to take on my obvious Tron deck, which I will be bringing to ruin everyone's day. <laughs> Dude, it's it's <laughs> fine, man. Don't worry about it. Okay, we'll we'll sort it out. I'm sure there'll be lots of game patrons there to hang out and you know play lots of games, and hopefully everyone else pops in too. You got to realize that even though people may know you, they may know your voice, they might not know what you look like. Uh, that's true. There's actually a rumor going around the Discord that I might be a shapeshifter because apparently, I mean, I mean, I feel like I look similar in all the pictures I post, but everyone feels like every single picture they see of me, I look completely different. Is this because your SCG profile got updated? Yeah, my, I, I mean, I, I updated it twice before and then there's just like other pictures of me out there, obviously. Actually, though, I just realized I shaved my beard today, so I have very little oh, beard no. right now, which is probably just going to throw people off even further. No, it's fine, man. You got you got like two days. I believe in you. Yeah, I can grow a beard real quick, so I might be on it. I mean, like Channel Fireball is going to have signage up. If they pay attention at all, they will be able to figure out who you are, and that will be rad. So okay. don't worry about it, man. Okay. Final thing, Head Games Podcast, episode one dropped earlier this week. This is going to be a weekly thing every Monday. Is that what people can expect? Every Monday we're shooting for. And that was kind of a big question for us. Are we going to do every week? Are we going to do bi-weekly? But then we sat down and started planning out show ideas. And honestly, we recorded the first cast and it just felt easy. Like It felt like I was having a conversation with Jonathan and I'm like, we could do a thousand of these. There's so much material, so many things to talk about. Our flow feels really good. It's a very natural conversation. So let's just do it every week. So there will be a new episode going up on Monday and hopefully every Monday going forward. And uh, I just have to thank everyone for the response. I mean, it's been overwhelming, the outpouring of support and just people saying they really dug the podcast, really like what they were hearing, they were going to follow in the future. All this stuff means so much to me. I'm, I'm really glad it seems to be connecting with listeners. That's because you guys crushed it. And based on that and based on who you are, I believe that you are going to continue to crush it. So uh, I am definitely looking forward to listening every week. It's it's kind of weird, you know, me doing this with you and then also just, I don't know, like being a fan on, on the flip side of things. I'm cool with that. That's good. Because obviously, before I came and, and did this with you, I was a fan of this podcast. So now we've kind of turned the tables a little bit. You get to be a fan of one of my podcasts. That's cool. I'm into Hell it. Hell yeah. I mean, you know, First Strike was good. It was good. First Strike's great. Yeah, First Strike is a fantastic podcast. Props to KYT, still out there making First Strike. I owe him a guest appearance. I promise I'll do one soon, KYT, if you're listening. He'll be back to First Strike soon. Well, and then maybe y'all can have me on Head Games if there is a good enough topic. Yeah, I I think it's coming for sure. We're going to figure out how to do it. Something that I could speak to, you know? Right. Waiting for just the right moment. Anyway, uh, I think that is it for announcements. We can actually get into the meat of the podcast, which is basically deck selection for GPLA. Uh, I was pretty high on mono blue, and the more aggressive that the red black decks get, the worse that matchup becomes. And I've I've kind of already done everything in my power to make that matchup as good as it possibly could be. So I don't know. It's like 
you can only take a mono colored deck, especially mono blue, like far enough. Like you only have a, a limited amount of tools. And I feel like I've exhausted all of that. So it is about as good as it can be. And I think that that is not good enough. Agree. Especially with an engine deck like that, you're limited to how many slots you actually have access to. There's a huge part of that deck, which you, you can't flex around. You have to have certain cards present. I think that the deck did not bear being a known quantity well at all. It, it just became, you know, as people understood the play patterns, as they made some very small concessions to their deck building, you know, playing cut ribbons as opposed to some other removal spell, making sure they had appropriate numbers of Chandra in the main deck, all, all these things, upping the number of braids, obviously a huge problem card. All of these things compounded where they were able to make a bunch of small tweaks to really start pushing the matchup much further in Red Black's favor than I initially felt it was. The first few times I played it, I felt like it was blue favored, where they weren't making appropriate concessions. But as time went on, that just faded further and further away. And at this point, I would not recommend playing the deck. I don't think there's enough good matchups out there. The biggest thing, the biggest change that I think the real world made was adopting on Crop Crasher. Like, Pia Nalar is a fine card, and Oncrop Crasher is basically a nightmare for the mono blue deck. But awkwardly enough, I think that them kind of overcompensating for this deck that ended up not materializing left them really vulnerable to the control decks last week. Right. The switch, the Crasher Pia Nalar switch is one particular point where I think they lost a lot of value against control, and control was able to find a lot more spots for its removal spells. Uh, you, you just need that kind of go wide-ish nature, especially when it comes to Esper control. Esper control does not deal well with permanents that split into you multiple threats. You know, they're all one for one all over the place. Sometimes they have Yehenny's expertise. That card is bad and it's played in very small numbers. So they they don't want to be doing cleanup of a wide board. You know, PNLR effectively does that, not to mention turning off their Vraska's Contempts and Exile Base Removal on your Scrap Heap Scroungers. So having PNLR leave the deck was a huge boon for Esper last week, no doubt about it. Yeah, the big thing too is like their top end, aside from Torrential Gearhawk, is generally like tap out for Teferi minus on your big four drop. Mm-hmm. And then you just having a Thopter left over is huge. Yep. Yep. You get to pressure Teferi and get it off the board. Yeah. I think Esper really seized on the moment. I will say, though, I hate the Esper decks. I hate them with a passion. And I, I don't know. Maybe maybe you would expect it to be kind of on brand for me. Obviously, I was a lover of the blue-white control decks. But Esper does not do it for me. Man, that mana base makes me cringe. Every game I play, <laughs> I'm just like, why am I doing this to myself? So blue-white, especially the version that you popularized, basically just goes over the top of people. Like goes over the top of everyone. And mm-hmm. Esper is very much like this small ball contained game where, you know, you're up a card here, you're up a card there, and then eventually you're just racing with a torrential gear hulk or, you know, burying them with Teferi or whatever. But like the games are super slim margins every single time. 
Right, right. And maybe that's what I'm learning myself is that I just don't have a lot of interest in these slim margin games. I like to win with authority. I like to have that moment to pull ahead and just kind of close the game out where it becomes unassailable. That's the style of control I often find myself playing. And that's why a card like Pull from Tomorrow appealed to me so much is you just, all right, cast it for five. I can't lose anymore. Esper definitely does not have anything like that. And just those early turns where you're battling your mana base. I mean, like, it's like being strip mined across the first five turns sometimes where you're just down a mana source on every single one of the first five turns. The games that that happens are horrible. They feel so bad and there's too many of them. It's just too many times that your mana base comes up and really gives you some difficulty. I mean, I'm not sure what mana base you're going off of, but like obviously I played Dasani's list. I, I okay. played Jeremy Dasani's list. So Yeah, so there's there's a lot of things that you can work with. Like like he had 27 land. How much white you play is up to you, but I think three or four copies of Teferi and one Forsake is basically all you need. I play he was against, disciplined, yeah. He was very yeah. disciplined with his white splash. And I, I play against these decks all the time on Magic Online where it's like, I'm pretty sure this Esper person has settled the wreckage. And, but it's like, no, they cast a Vraska's Contempt and a Fatal Push, and there's no way their mana could support all this nonsense, and then I just get settled. And it's yeah, like, no, what are you doing? <laughs> How is this possible? Like, yeah, okay, fine. You know, you, you got me this one time. This actually happened like two days ago. It was like my scrap heap in my heart or whatever. And it's like, I mean, realistically, I don't think I would have attacked with just one thing, even if Settle were face up, right? But it's just like, how are you able to cast your spells? Yeah, and I'm here complaining about a, a very disciplined version, one with a very thin splash for white. So yeah, I don't know how they do it. it. It's not something I want to undertake. I get why some people will be drawn to Esper for GPLA and GP Providence. I do think the red-black matchup, at least as red-black was previously configured, which is always, always, always a key point about red-black going week to week because it has so much room for adaptability. I think as it was previously configured, you could say that Esper had a good matchup against Red Black. I don't know if they'll have as good of a matchup this week. I think Red Black will probably make the necessary concessions. P is great. Uh, Duress is pretty bad against a deck with four Torrential Gearhulks. Plenty of name players have poo-pooed Doomfall in Red Black, but Doomfall gets the job done, you know? I am, I am more than happy to have, like, two Doomfall and, like, two Duress this week right? Instead of just going on the full four, because on the play, I think I'd probably only want to duress against Esper anyway. Okay. You think it's, it's that ineffective against their game plan? Like most of their cards do the same. You can't really afford to fight them on like the glimmer of genius axis. It's right. more just like you can't let Esper get traction with Teferi or Gearhulk. Otherwise, like as soon as you fall behind, it's lights out, right? So you could use duress to potentially force through a four drop or whatever, but it's like they have a bunch of counter spells and Vraska's contempts. And even uh, if you're on the draw, they could answer with Teferi. And it's just, it's too much. It's like a one mana piece of interaction. And to that extent, it's good. But for the most part, you're using duress to force through expensive spells, which doesn't really work out all that well. It, it's very rare that you're going to be able to like duress and play a four drop in the same turn. Yeah, I, I could buy that. I also have included a singleton copy of Doomfall in my red-black sideboard now. I haven't gone as far as two copies, but I see what you're saying, and I feel a lot of the ineffectiveness of duress against that archetype, for sure. The glimmer of genius point you made, you're just not going to restrict them on card quantity. You have to take care of their card quality. And 
their quality is based in Teferi and Gear Hulk as well. So it's nice to have a card that hits both of them for sure. Yeah. And the fact that they are playing this low resource game means that you don't necessarily need to fight them on glimmers or anything like that. It is very much just don't let them get traction. You have you are way more threat dense than uh, like they have answers or whatever. And all their stuff is super clunky. Like they have 27 land. Yes, a lot of them cycle, but that costs them mana. That can mean that you end up getting to slip in a problematic permanent. I, I just would not care about the card advantage roll too much. And instead, I would just want to jam like two, three, four, four against them and make it so they just can't even cast their glimmer, like can't even get any traction. What are the fours you're high on going into this week? Because obviously that's kind of the spot that has the most flex in red black. Uh, you know, we see Chandra, we see Rekindling Phoenix, we see Hazaret, we see Karn sometimes. All of these don't, cards don't are bring up numbers. Karn, man. Don't bring up Karn. You don't want to do this. You want zero Karn. You want no. You want Karn nowhere near your deck. Nowhere near my sixty. I do okay. think that it is a very good role player in post board games. But uh, I have been on like three Hazaret, two Phoenix, two Chandra, one Glorybringer for a while now, and I, I still feel like that is mostly correct. The mono green decks are like ten percent of the meta game, and Chandra is pretty bad in the mirror. Uh, Hazaret is basically the best card in the mirror, so. Obviously, they all have their own pros and cons, but I do think that you basically just need to figure out what you want your 75 to look like post-board against a lot of matchups. And then, like, you're, you're not going to have enough cards for, you know, your 15-card sideboard to make that happen. So you have to make some uh, sacrifices by putting some of that stuff in your main deck. And that's how I think, like, the Chandra's fit in. Like, ideally, I would just not play them because they're so bad in the mirror and that's, you know, a third of the, the field or whatever. But I do think that, you need them somewhere. So against control, I would want Hazaret and Chandra and Glorybringer and fewer Phoenixes. Against green, I want Chandra, Phoenix, Glorybringer, no Hazaret. Against red, I basically want no Chandras. So, you know, they're good in different spots and you kind of just have to juggle them all around. It's crazy to me how much opinions vary on what cards are good and what matchups as it relates to red black because honestly from my point of view it's a deck i've certainly played and i've been familiar with the whole time but i feel like i've kind of been taking a different role i've usually been trying to find the deck to stop red black and i think in a lot of cases successfully so but if you've heard me over the now months and months that red black has been a player i always bemoan the fact that they find a way to come back they alter their composition and, and they get back into the mix against whatever i come up with but one of the things that strikes me is just how differently everyone feels about every card's value in every matchup i was reading a bunch of literature trying to inform my own red black take this week uh and i came across sam black's article and sam black has incredibly different thoughts on not only the composition of red black but you know specifically things like chandra in the mirror he keeps his chandras in and, and he thinks they're fine in a lot of spots so it's it's crazy how you're spotting it as one of the worst cards he also hates hazard by the way he wants hazard nowhere near his deck and i kind of agree with him my experience with hazard has not been that good in red black i find it clunky but I'm sure so much of this has to do with individual play styles and just how we're approaching matchups. You know, I can see you trending more aggressive than I would trend in a given matchup. And that's probably why I like things like Karn more and why I like things like Chandra a little bit more is that I am trying to play a longer game. I'm not saying I'm correct. I'm just saying I think our approaches are coming out in the cards we value. Sam has identified Karn as being strong post-board in Red Black Mirrors, which I agree with, especially mm -hmm. if... You have enough exile removal for the specific cards in the matchup that matter. 
I think he is treating Chandra like a bad Karn, which is fine, but still not great. Like, if I had the opportunity to Chandra tick up and actually have there be a clear battlefield more often than not, I would like Chandra, but... Basically, what ends up happening is like they play a four, and whatever four they play, it just bricks your Chandra. So, like, that situation basically never comes up. But, like, if you get to play Karn, like, say they play Phoenix and you play Karn, it's like, okay, well, now your, your Karn is at six. They have to attack it, even if they have a Chain Whirler, which is like the pretty normal mm-hmm. thing that finishes off a Chandra. It's like your Karn is still alive. And then you can untap, take up Karn again, exile the Phoenix, whatever, and, and just kind of ride it from there. So, I like that. I, I do think that that game plan is viable, but. You need a bunch of different ways to interact with their exile stuff. So that means like a bunch of Doomfalls or Hour of Glories. Uh, I would highly recommend against splashing clunky, awkward cards like Vraska's Contempt. I think like that is just a non-starter for me. Agreed. You know, sometimes it's like Chain Whirler and Magma Spray, your Rekindling Phoenix or whatever. And like, that's fine. But I don't know. I feel like those games come up very, very infrequently because Red Black doesn't have, like, a divination, if that makes any sense. Like, you spend the first few turns doing nothing, and then you're like, okay, Planeswalker, please carry me through. And it's like, you needed to do something in the early turns to, like, sculpt your your game plan, right? Like, play uh, Read the Bones or something to help you hit your land drops and make sure that mm. you have all the answers set up and can protect your Planeswalkers. But Red Black doesn't do any of that. It's like, all right, I'm going to play these mopey threats that basically don't do anything, and you're going to remove them because that's what we do. And I don't know. I would, I would just rather try to curve them and then play Hazret and know that I'm not going to be able to attack with Hazret on turn four, but in a turn or two, Hazret is definitely going to be attacking them, and it's like super hard to kill. Okay. I can see taking that approach uh i I think ultimately uh, what this conversation is getting me to bring up is that i don't feel like the edge is there for me to play red black in la i I think it's maybe coward sure everyone always says this about mirror matches like oh i don't want to play the mirror match no no it's not that it's not that no i I don't i don't fear the mirror match i'm fine i'm fine playing the mirror match i just think that i can get more equity by making other decisions. I don't think the optimal decision for me would be to lean into red black mirrors, which I'm sure I could play competently. And you know, there's still a, f- a couple days as we record this before we head out to LA and I could find time to, to get a, a higher level of comfort with the matchup. Again, I've, I've played the deck. I'm familiar with it. I know a lot of the play patterns and I'm sure I could get comfortable very quickly, but I just think on the whole, there's other avenues out there where there's a lot more edge to be gained in this field. No, I think that's nonsense, man. I think no matter what, you're going to come up with an excuse to to not play the best deck. No, no. Look, right now, right now, that's what I'm doing. I agree with you. But there have been years of my Magic career where all I did was play the best deck because I think it's so far and away clearly the best deck that you are, again, giving up equity by making any other decision. I do not think that standard looks like that right now. And I think there's some very, very strong other choices out there, uh, especially with a little bit of elbow grease and some innovation. There's just a lot of good matchups in the field for certain decks. And that's what I want to take advantage of right now. All right. I could continue having this discussion. And I do think that this could be its own episode potentially. And it is also a little awkward for me to, I'm not necessarily advocating like, oh, you're supposed to play red black or you're wrong because I am also not planning on playing red black this weekend. So it's kind of awkward for me to do that. It's just that I I take issue with like the whole, 
I don't want to play mirror matches. I don't think I can get an edge. And then I'm like, you're wrong. And then you're like, well, okay, different excuse, you know? I, I guess if that's the case, then I presented my excuse <laughs> improperly. My my real point is that there's bigger edges elsewhere. It, it's not that I don't think I can get an edge eventually in the mirror. That's fine. I, I believe I could play the mirror competently and, and get advantaged heads up. I just think I can get a lot more points in other spots. That's what it really comes down to. Is that actually true, though? Well, that's what the tournament's going to tell us. <laughs> I, I so, mean, well, my anticipation is yes, but I've been wrong before. I think, you know, if we ever got to the point where we were answering that question 100% accurately, every single time we played a tournament, we'd be taking a lot of the guesswork out of everything and we'll, we'd have figured out magic at that point. Okay. Well, nobody has figured out magic. Yeah. So check this out, right? Esper Control did really well. You think that it is a flawed, clunky, not great deck, which I mostly agree with. I do think that it is slightly better than that and certainly like capable of winning tournaments you know yeah i i agree it's it's a style thing on top of it being a little clunky uh which which pro tour was this whenever scg con was it was immediately following oh it was dominaria a lot of people showed up with esper control at scg con and it was pretty popular in the following weeks and then it kind of just died out and now it's kind of had this resurgence so given that I do think that people are going to be very willing to play Esper Control. Agree? I think I agree. Yeah, I, there'll be more Esper Control than there was last week, 100%. Okay. Turbo Fog was good for the Pro Tour because Red Black certainly was not built anywhere near where it needed to be to be able to fight this deck when it is, you know, like active or humming or whatever, right? Unless. Unless they're like missing land drops or red black has like, you know, a turn five kill or whatever. I, I think that Turbo Fog is generally going to be a favorite. Yes. Now I felt that that should change, but it doesn't seem like it changed as much as it should have. Like there are very few copies of Insult to Injury and it didn't seem like anyone really made any large sweeping changes to help their Turbo Fog matchup. And I also think that it was very telling that the two red decks that did the best were mono red or nearly mono red. Yeah, decks that got a little bit lower to the ground and presented their clock a little bit faster, for sure. That's that's a good recipe for success against Fog because it does need setup time and it takes a little while to get rolling. And if you're putting the screws to them on turn one and every turn following that, you can definitely get a lot of points that way, for sure. So... Now that Fog has shown itself to not just be this one-trick pony, it is somewhat more versatile than people, including myself, gave it credit for. And certainly there are people like you who are working to further iterate on the archetype. I feel, and it was like somewhat successful last week, and it still uh, made one top eight, I believe. Yes, I think that's accurate. Then I, I think that this deck will also show up in some numbers, right? I think that is true. I think, however, I would object to like your perception of the deck having a pretty good weekend is spot on. It did have a pretty good weekend. I don't think that is what perception will be because the hype, I don't know if hype is the right word, the discussion, the focus on this deck leading into this double GP weekend was intense because all anyone was talking about was Nexus of Fate. And it was 
in part because people were excited about this deck, but mostly because of the distribution of Nexus of Fate, the issues involved with it. It was everywhere on the internet. It was all anyone was talking about. So I think a lot of eyes were on Nexus of Fate. How much was it going to cost at the GPs? Uh, how widely played was it going to be? And a lot of people, when there was only one copy of Nexus of Fate, or one copy of Turbo Fog across the two top eights were kind of saying, see, it's just a flash in the pan. The deck is going to go away. That's the end of it. And that was a common sentiment I saw from people. But if you dug a little deeper, and if you read my article this week, you know where I'm going with this. And Nexus of Fate actually performed very well in the European GP and decently enough in the American GP. But Nexus of Fate, despite only having one copy in the top eight in Europe, also finished ninth, 10th. And there's a whole host of Nexus of Fates as you move throughout the top 25. And they bricked on tiebreakers, right? They were also 13-2? I believe so. Yeah, I, I think it was a tiebreaker issue. So again, we talk a lot about the narrative here. The narrative could have looked very, very different if just a couple of rounds, you know, there could have been five Nexus of Fate decks in that top eight if things break a little tiny bit different and there's a whole different story going on. And I think that to some extent, that was not the feeling I was getting just from the literature, the discussion going on this week. People have put this deck a little bit further down on the threat list. They're less concerned about Nexus of Faith than they were last week. I just assumed after the Pro Tour that people would make the necessary changes and that people would expect people to make those changes and that they would both not play it and that it would not perform very well. So to see people playing it and having it do well, it certainly raised my opinion of the deck. Right, right. And I think the the key point here is that Turbo Fog is very much typically a one and done archetype. You present your Fogs, okay, they find an answer to Fogs, some non-combat-based source of damage or something like insult to injury, and that's it. The deck goes away. It's done. But there are adaptations to be made on the Turbo Fog side this time too. And you can account for things like insult to injury. I think there's some other cards that would be more problematic to account for. And there's some other things that these decks could look to pick up over time. Something like, I, th- I think this is a pretty bad card overall, but something like Siege Gang Commander out of Red Black, presenting eight points of damage that they can just throw at your face. That's a pretty big game changer. A lot of the games go where you stabilize at a lower life total and just one Siege Gang is going to be able to successfully end the game at that point a lot of the time. I'd rather just Banefire you though, right? Yeah, Banefire is good too. Uh, another another good example. You can certainly Banefire, uh, especially when these decks start looking at things like Settle the Wreckage, which is an adaptation that I've seen some of them make uh, in response to Insult to Injury. And it's one that I like myself. I think Settle the Wreckage is, is a fine place to be as decks adapt to the presence of Turbo Fog. So there was another wrinkle here. There was a, there was a more room for innovation on the Turbo Fog side. I don't think the deck lists we saw at the Pro Tour were anywhere near optimal. No, me either. And that's where it gets really interesting is that now when the optimal version of Turbo Fog is found, where do these decks in the format stand against it? Eh, I don't know. I mean, you're you're talking about, I believe, just small iterations on the deck. It's not like something fundamentally changes about the deck necessarily, right? Like you still have like the same core 40, 50 cards. Right. I, I think the the 50 card core is pretty locked and then you can float around a little bit with the top side. You know, there's, you can change your draw spells. There's those weird old flex cards like Bounty of the Luxa, uh, Oath of Teferi. Kind of hate all of these cards and I think they're unnecessary and cute. 
there's the planeswalker slot if you're playing Karn, if you're playing Nissa. There's cases for both, I think. Uh, but on the whole, you're right. There, there is a core that you kind of have to play with in your 60. The 75, on the other hand, I think is still a little bit more open, and there's some interesting plans out there I'm seeing out of 75s. Yeah, there's there's no way in hell that four Carnage Tyrant, eight counter spells, and three of whatever is correct. No, no, I, I'm not into the Carnage Tyrant plan. I think that it's kind of obvious. I, I mean, you see things like Esper accounting for Carnage Tyrant in a weird way. I, I don't even know the name of the card. Do you know the name of the card I'm talking about, the land? Detection Tower? Yeah, so so they're doing weird stuff to deal with Carnage Tyrant, but they are accounting for it, and they anticipate that you'll have some kind of hexproof threat in post-board games. Nezahal remains a bad card that I'm not interested in. Yeah, at absolutely. It, at least as it goes against control decks, like them being able to disallow the trigger is just a non-starter for me. I'm not playing that card ever. To be fair, Detection Tower also takes care of the Chromiums in the mirror. That's true. And it's also a 28th land, which I think yeah. is a, a plus in the mirror as well. So I, I don't hate it as much as I should is, is where I fall on that card. I think that's all nonsense. To the, like Once you get to the point where you're like, all right, I'm going to play a Chromium for the mirror, and then I'm going to play the tower for to answer the, the Chromium. Yeah, they're Chromiums. It's just like, yeah, dude, come on. Just play Argul's Bloodfast or something. Yeah, we're trying real hard at this point. I guess it's more just that they're considering these cards. And Doomfall is a card as well. So if these decks have access to Doomfall, they'll find answers for your Carnage Tyrant. It's not like you're playing a bunch of creatures and Carnage Tyrant. You're playing just Carnage Tyrant and being like, well, hope this is good enough. I don't think it's going to be. Or just play a commit. Play a commit from the blue side you're talking about, from the fog side. Well, no, to fight these stupid campy counters. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yep. As a a false counterspell, basically. Yeah, that works. I think that's a fine approach as well. All of these things are being considered by these decks. So I'm not into the Carnage Tyrant plan. That's not doing it for me. Yeah. I, I never liked Nezahal, Chromium, Carnage Tyrant, any of that nonsense. I would rather just play Siphoner or Bloodfast and kill them. Uh, for for Bant, obviously, you don't necessarily have that. I mean, you have three copies of Search for Canta, and then you have your weirdo sideboard, if you want to explain that. Sure. I could talk about my weirdo sideboard. So so <laughs> one of the things that happened as I've been playing this deck over the past week, and I've played this deck a bunch. So I'm getting to the point where, you know, <laughs> my iterating on decks, I think is very different from yours. I'm willing to throw a lot of things out there without testing. Just like, okay, I feel this is good. This should work. In my head, this makes sense. And a lot of times I'm right. A lot of the times I'm wrong too. This time I've actually played some games. And one of the things I've discovered is that the deck benefits tremendously from just increasing velocity at all points in the curve, as well as making your search for Mascontas more reliable. If you've played this deck in any number of games, you have found that the games where you flip search, it becomes difficult to lose pretty quickly. You're able to get what you need and get yourself to a point of inevitability. So one of the cards that I picked up pretty early and really impressed me, and I was playing it in small numbers at first, was Sensor. Sensor is just this kind of speed bump and answer to all these weirdo cards that you might have to deal with throughout the game and an unexpected card in a lot of instances, but more importantly, just a way to get to the cards you really need when you reach that point in the game and get your search for Escantas really humming. To the same effect, I also found Hieroglyphic Illumination to be a better card draw spell than Glimmer of Genius. Uh, Obviously, you can't get as deep, 
but being able to cycle in spots and, and really take advantage of your mana efficiency at all points is very, very important with this deck. So now we have a deck that contains some hieroglyphic illuminations and some sensors, and we have Haze of Pollen because we need our fogs, and there's eight cycling lands in our mana base. So I think you know what I am going to propose next, and that is Drakehaven. And Drakehaven against the control decks has been an absolute house. And in conjunction with Baral, Chief of Compliance, I might add, which is adding a, another discard outlet to your deck. So you're getting extra Drakehaven triggers as you play this weirdo fish game with multiple negates and Jace's defeat and Baral, Chief of Compliance. You're still doing the same board 15 cards thing against control, but this plan actually works and it's good and it's difficult for them to deal with. And I love the fact that I have turned around what should be a very problematic matchup. I think you can also take this approach against the mono blue outcome deck. Again, a deck which I expect to trend down and, and not be as present. But now you have a clock and you don't try and play this endless game that they're eventually going to overwhelm you in. You can play this fish style and just really lean hard on your Drake Havens. So I think finding the sideboard unlocked a lot of matchups for me. And the red, black, mono, green, uh, as long as green doesn't add blue. If green gets to the point where they're adding blue, I think your matchup becomes a lot more problematic. But as it stands right now with them leaning on black cards, the green matchup remains very favorable. Red, black remains favorable. And with a good sideboard plan against these previously problematic matchups, I'm really into this deck right now. And I am I would say I'm about 90% to play this in LA. Things can always change. I don't want to hard lock into it, but I, I really like the shape my build is taking on. I mean, how is how is your win rate been? I, I like I, I know this is a dumb question, but I'm just I'm curious. I would say I mean I don't track win rate. I probably should. I would say it's above sixty percent right now. Okay. So good enough. I, I mean, obviously this has been iterating over time. This final configuration is just something I reached today. So I, I don't have a lot of data on it, but it feels right. Like the Drake Haven yeah. plan feels right to me. No, I, I do think it's a good plan. I mean, to kind of put this into context, when I got second at Rivals, my experience playing Mardu Pyromancer was 2-2 dropping a league, you know? Yeah. It, it's just but, like... But you felt it at that point. You're like, okay, I'm on to something here. Nah, not really. I still needed... <laughs> no, just total crapshoot. Okay. I still needed Mattia to like kind of twist my arm or whatever. Like he, he made some good changes to the deck and then I was kind of on board, you know? Okay. But the, the deck that I had, it was obviously lacking in some departments and I knew that I could change some of it. And then Mattia showed up with the other half basically. And it was like, okay, now we're good. Right. But yeah, for, for the most part, it's just play games, learn some things, learn what your optimal configuration should look like. Do some rough sideboarding notes and like, you're good to go. I think that playing a lot of losing versions of red, black and mono blue eventually helped point me to the correct one where then it's just like, all right, I play a couple leagues and if I have time and then I win with them and it just kind of reinforces what you already know. Right. I don't know about you and hopefully you agree with me here because otherwise I'm really putting myself out there. I lose a lot on magic online. I Dude, lose same. I lose way more on Magic Online than I do in real life. And that's because I'm out there trying things and trying to find what I believe is the best version of a deck. I'll play dumb cards. I'll take dumb chances. I'll try weird sideboard plans and happily lose if I'm learning along the way. 
And I see so many people so concerned with like the trophy grind and and having a good record on Magic Online. How do you ever learn anything if you're just winning all the time and like not taking any chances? How do you advance archetypes? How do you find new sideboard plans if you're always playing it safe? People don't try. People don't yeah. try. That that's the thing. You know how many people talk about like, oh, I four o dropped X leagues or whatever. I didn't get any trophies for the last couple of pro tours because I was never four o. Yeah, I, I believe that. I, I lose a lot on Magic Online, and I'm very comfortable with it. As long as I feel like I'm learning, I don't care. I really don't. I'm, I'm happy to donate my tickets uh, if it's in furtherance of finding the correct version of a deck. I've, I've dropped it from leagues with basically every record imaginable. 01, yeah. 1-0, 2-0, 2-1, like whatever. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, as long as I know that I have run out of things to learn effectively or that there is something else that I need to find the answer to, like I'm done, get me out of there. Yeah. I think this is a particularly teachable moment of this cast. And it's something that I see reflected in a lot of questions we get. Like when we take questions over in the Patreon, I see people who a lot of, when they describe the way they use magic online, where they're describing their play patterns to me, I see fear in their descriptions of how they use the program. They don't want to lose. They don't want to give up value. And I get the value thing. You know, it's sometimes silly to incinerate tickets. I I know it's different situations for different people. I'm not belittling that at all. But the most important thing about playing games like this is that you're using them to learn. And losing is part of learning. There's no way you learn by just winning all the time. I I don't think anyone on the planet learns that way. There were days where I would deal poker for 12 hours, come home at 4 a.m., get steak and shake, and then just grind games of the same 75 mystical teachings deck that I knew was basically perfect. And it was just grinding to beat people because I knew my deck was awesome. There's there's joy in that too. Don't get me wrong. I've certainly done that with good lists. I just don't have that anymore. Never, liter- when was the last time you had a list where you're just like, I just want to win with this all the time. I love this deck. Basically never. It's like, okay, I figured it out. Now I want to go learn other stuff. Hmm. I think at one point beating people was high on my list of priorities. Now it's just, oh man, the learning stuff is so much sweeter. Yeah, I I definitely lean that way now, but there's still instances where I just fall in love with a deck and I'm like, okay, I I will play this for a bunch. I I would say with blue-white, when I first found the pull deck, I played a bunch of blue-white, just winning a lot and being happy with it and not necessarily immediately moving on to anything else. It's rare that I submit the same deck list to a league more than once. It almost never happens. In that instance, I definitely played like four leagues in a row with the same deck list and was very happy with it. Agree. There are instances of me playing other card games. Like I'll play, I played Murloc Paladin in uh, Hearthstone a lot. And I played like Daria in Shadowverse a lot. But th- those were out of like actual pure love and joy of the decks. And it's just very rare for that to be captured, especially in modern day magic, where it's just like kind of mid-rangey grind fest. You know, I guess like, I, I did play a lot of green white tokens and I was certainly happy to play in real life with that deck, but I was never really grinding it on magic online. That's interesting that you find yourself still getting to that point in other games. I mean, I know you think magic is the best game. Do you really think it's the state of magic as it stands? The style of gameplay that we've been doing in magic for the past few years, it's, it just isn't leading you to those kind of joyous games that you used to have. Yeah, for the most part. And I'm also 
learning things by playing Hearthstone and, and playing Shadowverse. Whereas if if I were playing Red Black over and over and over and over again, it's just like, oh God, I, I don't want to do this. Yeah, I get that. I'm really into Togwaggle right now in Hearthstone, by the way. As long as we're talking Hearthstone, I just want to throw that out there. I love yeah, that deck. Yeah, you're the worst. It's so much fun to play. I finish a game like every 30 minutes. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I don't want to do that, man. I want to I want to <laughs> kill people on turn six. That's it. That's that's probably another reason why I'm not grinding a ton on Magic Online is that I would probably end up erring on the side of these mid-range plus or minus a size type of decks versus mm-hmm. this this Turbo Fog deck, right? It's like, it would just take forever and I just don't enjoy those games. So it does. It, it does take a long time. That's one of the downsides. And, and one of the difficulties in kind of gathering a lot of data about archetypes like this is that it just takes forever to grind out those games. So I get what you're saying there too. You want to, you want to know something though? And I'm, I'm pretty sure you know this already, but Teferi is the best card in standard. Yeah. Yeah. That's what this is really all about. Basically is finding different shells to abuse Teferi. One of the best planeswalkers ever printed, for sure, as we see it reach back and back into older formats. A great time to be a blue-white mage and have access to Teferi. Yeah, I, I feel like I should be doing more, maybe not Gift of Paradise Teferi, but definitely something, you know? Like some sort of rampy Teferi thing, not not like Disallow, just going in some other direction. Have you ever, have you ever played a Teferi in a tournament? No, God no. Why would I do that? That sounds miserable. Oh, it's not miserable. It feels so good. My options are either play blue-white, like straight blue-white, which I had fundamental disagreements with on a lot of different levels, or play a clunky three-color deck like Dizani's that you have played with and absolutely despised strictly because of the mana. Or you could play this deck. Did I do anything to sell you on the possibility that this might be a wise choice for GPLA? Or is this going to be one of those times where you're hating my deck choice again? I think this deck is good. I disagree with the notion that Illumination is better than Glimmer. I do agree that you certainly want the Cyclers and the Velocity and being able to use uh, all your mana each turn. I think that eight Cycling Lands actually kind of gets in the way of that to some degree, just having too many ETB tap lands. Mm, it's and, a trade-off for sure. And I think that Glimmer's ability to just get you the pieces of what you want is more important. Like You're basically never going to cast Illumination unless there's literally nothing else going on, right? That is true, but let me tell you something about Glimmer is that you almost never cast Glimmer too. It was, it was just like always your worst option. And it's hard for me to really... I disagree with that notion, though, because I think that you can have a bad option and go to seven, or you can cast Glimmer and go to three on tap and be able to play like two or three spells. I think that that is probably a common occurrence with this deck. Maybe you just want to like cycle, play a thing, and then maybe cycle again, and you think that that is good enough and that's getting you closer to actually winning or whatever. I don't know. There's just a, there's a lot of redundancy in your deck and you're right that there's points where you're looking for specific pieces, but it's a lot more where you just need to get to the next card and reduce your deck size and get to this point of inevitability and turn on your search for Ascanta. I, I think there's more upside in Illumination. Obviously, I, I can't contest the point where you need to find a specific card. Glimmer of Genius does that better. It's getting you deeper, but there's just a lot of other points where I think Illumination is the card you're looking for. And 
once you have access to the sideboard plan, which I now believe to be a very good sideboard plan, that just is pushing things even further in this direction. So I'm pretty comfortable with the choice overall. I agree. I'm just very curious for like how many things to discard you actually need. Like how many pieces do you need to actually make Drake Haven good? Is it all eight cycle lands? Is it illumination? Is how much does Baral factor into things? What about Charter Course, etc.? Like you have a lot of different stuff going on that actually helps the Drake Havens. Do you actually need to go this hard? Uh, that's a fair question. It's like, a fair what question. If it, what if you? What if each Drake Haven just made like two or three tokens? And that's probably that, good enough. Yeah, won't that be okay? Yeah, I, I think it it mostly is. And if that were the only factor pushing me towards playing Illumination over Genius, then you know it, it becomes a much closer decision at that point. But I think there's multitudinous factors. I, I don't know. You know, maybe this is something that I'll play some games over the next few days, and I'll rethink my position. And I'll find spots where, oh, if I only had Glimmer here, I can pull this game out. But as it stands right now. I just don't think the cost is that high. As far as the eight cycling lands, that's kind of the default. Now, granted, that's a bad reason to do something. That's um, a horrible reason. Right. And and certainly doesn't make it right. But again, you're so reliant on this velocity. And maybe when you instill this velocity via sensor, via illumination, you can afford to trend back a little bit on those lands. But let's not forget you also have Glacial Fortress, Sun Petal Grove, Hinterland Harbor, and those lands are important for enabling those too when you're of able course, to play but turn one. And you no, have no turn one plays besides the cycles. So look look at your deck list. Like I, I have the picture pulled up in front of me. You have a Lyra in your sideboard. You have two settles main, which may or may not be entirely correct. Other than that, you have four Teferi and a random cast out on your board that you almost certainly don't need. You don't need that many white sources. With Gift of Paradise, like is to settle the wreckage worth playing all these ETB tap lands? Why don't you just clean it up and like make this deck list actually smooth? Uh, well, there's still time, and that's something I can look at. I I haven't had issues with the mana base, but obviously that's not how you build mana bases. You build them to be optimal. So there's no nah, man. It's especially I can find, especially if you're trying to be like all svelte and stuff. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. trying to be super lean and nice. Get these tap lands out of here and cut down the mana requirements for the the third color like you don't need it i think i disagree on not needing an effect like settle right now okay Um, but what turn are you settling them right like this is presumably a thing that you're using to beat insult which also makes me think that it doesn't have to be main deck but it it doesn't it doesn't this was a concession to space yeah it could help you save sideboard slots sure but you have you have gift of paradise and all the cyclers Absolutely, the last thing you want if you're about to get insulted is for your white source to ETP tapped, which eight of your lands do. So you have to jump through a lot of hoops. I will say that you will likely have one on like a one cycling land early that you play, right? So right. you're digging right. for like one of your seven untapped white sources or trying to have a gift of paradise or whatever already rolled up. But dude, you can make some sacrifices. You can actually you can absolutely shave on some of these white sources. Okay. I'm starting to see a picture now where we could get some more flexibility in the mana base. I guess the the question then is like, do you need the cycle lands for Drake Haven, which also has to be answered if we're going to make changes along those lines. Right. Another thing you could do is cut some of the clunky lands for a couple copies of Aether Hub because you're going to be using it for casting Teferi or Settle. Presumably you're going to have enough green and blue sources and it's not going to screw you if it's in small numbers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. I hadn't even considered Aetherhub. I don't know. I see some lists with like a uh, spring to mind and gift of paradise strikes me as very, very strong and maybe spring is good. I don't know. I mean, I would have four gift before anything else for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm right there with but you. I, I could see the fifth copy. I don't know. I, I think the ramp spells that have gotten into this deck are interesting because again, when we're talking about value and cyclers, which this deck definitely benefits from, there's uh, what is it beyond the sands to consider. There's also grow from the ashes, which has a really nice spot where when you're playing it for five, you get two untapped mana to be able to fog right away. And then you're at Nexus of Fate mana. So uh, another yeah. interesting card, which has never made the cut as it stands right now. Like I said, I think Gift comes first because of the Teferi interaction. But those cards have always intrigued me as to which one would be my fifth spell if I decided I wanted one. Yeah, maybe it is Grow. Maybe that is better. That My first version of Turbo Fog was for Grow. Granted, it was a very, very different deck than this, but it was impressive for sure. Being able to play it for five was fantastic. You know, I had Mirari Conjecture at that point, so I couldn't lean on Gift of Paradise as hard. But those turns where you got to play five and have two mana on tap to fog right away were fantastic feeling. Yeah, I could see that. Is is Brawl and Pile of Counterspells not good enough? I think it's good enough. I, I think for sure it's good enough. I think it's it's the best thing you can be doing out of the sideboard against those decks. Right. But my point is, do you actually need Drakehaven? Oh, I see what you're saying. I, so I think so. I, I think given adaptations that the control decks have made, if we were still in a blue-white format, I could make an argument that Drakehaven is not necessary. I think given the Esper nature of control decks, the fact that they will be aware that you're planning on the Brawl plan. Like Brawl is not surprising anymore. Everyone knows Brawl is coming in post-board. So you kind of need another wrinkle, another game plan to play. I think given that, I'm okay with Drakehaven. And there's just the fact that I never felt like I was getting all that much out of my sideboard. And I tried a bunch of different configurations, a bunch of different cards. And you know, if you agree that this Baral plan is locked in, it's always going to be there. Those nine slots are locked up. It gives you six other slots to work with. And I've floated through everything in those six slots and nothing ever felt impressive. There was nothing that blew me away. There was nothing that added any kind of new wrinkle that was swinging matchups dramatically. I've liked Lyra in a few spots. I know you weren't super thrilled to see it there. It, it just does such a good job of both uh, brick walling offense and being in a different threat that can end the game much quick, much more quickly. You play this weirdo like attack with the Lyra Nexus of Fate, or excuse me, Haze Upon on their turn, untap Nexus of Fate, swing for 10, and then the game's just out of reach at that point. Really weird, weird play patterns. But on the whole, Lyra's been good enough that I'm happy with it. But nothing else has really done much for me. And it's not like I want to jam three or four Lyras in my sideboard. That really. It's not the route I'm trying to go. I don't think you're going to win a lot of matchups that way. And it's only good against the most aggressive decks. You don't want to do something like that against, you know, Esper control and rely on that for a win condition. That's silly. So my issue is that you talk about how the people already know that Brawl is a thing. Therefore, they're going to sideboard like it exists. And you might need something else on top of that. Meanwhile, you are confident that like, Lyra belongs or something along those lines when they definitely know that that possibility exists. And also they have cards that we've discussed like Doomfall, Banefire that can also just deal with this thing. So I, I just don't think that Lyra itself is worth the slot. Whereas you could 
against Control, for example, like what if your sideboard was Brawl and your Drake Havens were Glimmer of Geniuses or whatever? Like you have all this velocity, you have this smooth mana, you have mana acceleration, a bunch of cheap counter spells, and a bunch of search for his cantas when Dazani's list only had one field of ruins. Like, how are you actually realistically going to lose? I mean, if your negates line up poorly against their gear hulks, that's a thing that I could totally see, but maybe that's a reason to swap a negate for a defeat. Right. You go harder in defeat in that case. Interesting strategy. I, I don't think that's a bad idea at all and something that you could try. Absolutely. I, I you know, if you want to put in some turbo fog testing time and we'll make the best turbo fog team on the planet, I'm all I mean, about that. I, I literally don't have enough time to play like a league. Right. It would, ta- it <laughs> it would, would take, take you hours. It, yeah. By the time it finished, I mean, it would be time for the next Grand Prix, right? So. I know. I know. No, no. I, I do think that's a promising approach. I like where your head's at, but I kind of like know this works. And you're right. There At some point, you just to be like, okay, I like this plan. There might be other alternate plans. They might be fine. Yeah, you yeah. Gotta you got to choose at some point, right? At no point am I like, oh man, your your deck sucks. Your plan is bad. I am just saying, man, if if I were playing this list, I would probably just clean up the mana base, minimize the white component, try and beat up control decks with just brawl and cheap counter spells and velocity, and make sure that you're always up on land drops. You're up on cards in hand, counter spells, whatever, and lands as well. Yeah, on tap lands, and you, you just get under them. And as long as you're keeping up with them card advantage-wise, there's nothing they can do to stop you. Eventually, you're going to force through a Teferi or transform a Search or whatever. Like, Next maybe they, fate on their end step is yeah, another powerful. Yeah, exactly. Like you have, you have so much natural game against them. Why do you need Drakehaven? I think you have overstated the amount of natural game you have against them. Because, I mean, it could just be my old sideboard plans were so bad that... I was actively hurting myself. Like doing anything else would have been better than doing stuff like Carnage Tyrant or Nezahal or anything like that. And, and it's not like I thought the matchup was completely untenable. It just didn't feel favorable. Those cards don't beat anyone. Right. So I, I agree, I agree with, with you. You're, yes. you're actively doing yourself a disservice by trying to cast those cards and beat people with them. Right. Right. So there's still a lot of avenues to explore. Uh, I wish I had all the time in the world to explore them all. It, we're probably pretty close to the time, though, where it's going to be Drakehaven, regardless of the fact that I, I think there's an argument to be made for doing things like Glimmer and just being a better counterspell deck than they can be. So I know this plan works because I've done it with uh, Black Blue Midrange. Specifically Drakehaven? Or you're saying no, the Glimmer plan? Okay, the, okay. The Glimmer plan. Having untapped lands, counterspells that actually line up with their threats, cheap threats of your own. Uh, making sure that you just don't get buried by their card advantage, making sure that they don't stick a torrential gear hulk. Like that is it. That's that's all it really comes down to. As long as they just don't stick a Teferi and ride that for a bunch of turns. So what about the fact though? And I agree that in blue black mid range, fantastic plan. A hundred percent, you can do that. There, your threat is glint sleeve siphoner, which is just generating tremendous value on its own, as well as having two power as opposed to one power, as well as being able to be played in multiples. And that's very different looking from Baral, where you're now asking this card to hold control of the game no. for a longer period of time. You have a split with Baral and Search. Okay, so you're putting Search in the same category. Absolutely. I can buy that to some extent. 
it just focus focus on the cheap plays, man. Not like that's why I like Drakehaven is because it is mostly a cheap play. It right. will likely get in under a counter spell, or at the very least, you know, you're gonna force them to do awkward stuff on their glimmer turn or whatever. I, I do still not like how it doesn't line up particularly well against opposing to fairies unless you actually get a turn of use. So I don't know. I guess it is just a thing that you just have to play on three and if they negate or disallow it, it's whatever you move on with your life. Right, right. Look for another spot. Yeah, I, I do think that untapped lands, bunch of card drawing, brawl counter spells, it's lights out. Okay, so we will see where we end up. I'll certainly be sharing my deck list with our Patreons as we do before every event. I'm sure you'll be doing the same. I kind of laid my cards on the table here as to where I'm leaning. Where are you leaning right now? I think red black is fine. I just don't think I would have a whole lot of fun playing it. I've played it in the last X standard tournaments and I went X one in nationals and I did poorly at the pro tour. My deck was built pretty badly though. And I've been playing some on magic online and I know what I like and know what I don't like. I briefly considered playing mono green splash blue. I think exclusion mage is really good in that deck. I think the counter spells are really good and I think that deck is mostly just horrendous. If you can do the black splash and just be mono tap out beatdowns, I think that's still probably a better plan than trying to play all these counter spells and stuff, even though Exclusion Mage is good. It's just like too many wrinkles in, mm. in your own deck and Scrap Heap Scrounger is really good and whatever. You know, the, the deck needs some amount of consistency and I like adventurous impulse is not it and the games where you don't draw land or elves are pretty awful compared to the ones you do and yes, i don't know there's yeah. yeah there's just too many problems and yeah turbo fog would take forever and i'm too old and i would get too tired <laughs> so where are we what's what's the, what's the choice black blue mid-range i don't know i don't know how this happened i was going to build red black for a buddy of mine josh jacobson and i was going to play mono blue and then the problems i outlined at the beginning of the cast kind of started coming to fruition in the magic online leagues and then looking at people's lists from the grand prix last weekend it was like ah, okay you know things are are not really getting any better for me and then he was just like oh i don't know that i want to play red black cuz he only plays magic like once every 6 years or whatever so he was just like, yeah, I might not play this. And it's like, okay, well, then maybe I can play red, black, whatever. So I started testing that a little bit. I started testing mono green. Corey Burkhart top eights the GP with black, blue midrange and just looks horrendous. And Nick Prince <laughs> like DM'd me on Twitter and he was playing black, blue midrange. It's like, I don't know. I guess this deck looks fun. I played at the NB in the weekend, like the whole SG con weekend. I liked it. So I don't think it's good or the best choice or anything, but I, I'm also not like hunting for pro points or anything. So whatever. I was going to say, this is the absolute softest sell I've ever been given on a deck in my entire oh, life. Man, I'm not trying to sell you. You asked me if you should play the deck. I would say absolutely not. Okay. At, at least you're open about it. So I don't think it's good. Wanna, it, just, it has a bunch of cards. I like you just want to play some good, honest, fair magic make some some champion of wits and some glint sleeve siphoners one more time and ride off into the sunset that way. Lose horribly to Chain Whirler? Hell yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Uh, I, I do, I, I guess I want to use the word enjoy the deck. 
I like the play patterns. I think the games are often interesting. I also don't think it's great, but it doesn't sound like I really need to uh, to argue to convince you of that. It sounds like you're already there. I, I can't fight you if, if you're already on board with it being pretty medium. So, I, I mean, it's like the definition of a medium deck, right? Yeah, well, I, I think my list is going to be good for whatever that's oh, worth. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it will be. And so that's something our, our patrons can look forward to. If if they're also aficionados of the blue-black mid-range style, I'm sure you'll have the best blue-black mid-range list for them. It would be very difficult to sell me on it being the correct choice for this tournament. And you're not trying to, so we don't have to have that discussion. Uh, what is the correct choice? I played three Pia, three Hazaret, and Nationals and really liked it. Granted, that was, I guess that was the weekend after SCG Con or a couple weekends after, and everyone was pretty scared of the Scarab God, so I played four unlicensed disintegrations, and now I think that number should trend down a lot. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. You don't even have to play black in your deck, I think. If you just play like Wyatt's PT winning deck with some Heart of Curians and Scrap Heaps, I'd be down. Yeah, you know, every time I try and talk myself into like these mono red lists where I feel like it is well positioned. And I agree with you. I feel like it is well positioned and a fine choice. I play some games and I just, it's not the right style for me. I, I talk myself out of it very quickly in all, but the most dramatic instances where like ramen up red, I was all about it. Absolutely. The power level was off the charts. It felt really good going back to like around magic origins time the mono red decks then were very good i don't have that same kind of feeling about this mono red list i do believe it's well positioned and i would support anyone who wanted to play that deck uh maybe i'll bring my mono red stuff with me we'll see maybe it'll be my absolute last second backup plan but seems Dude, unlikely bring uh you know 200 red and black cards spell sling and just change cards after every game Right, and the last configuration I end up on, that's what I'll be playing. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say play it for sure, but you know, you could tweet out the list or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll certainly have all of my red and black cards with me. I bring all my standard stuff with me when I travel to standard GPs, so oh, it'll be man, there. I, I'm trying to travel light. I think I just have a good system for it. Like I, I have two little binders, and I stick them in my suitcase, and then I have all of standard with me, so it's easy enough. Yeah, fair enough. Well... Is what, what do you think that a, a normal person should play? Someone who's not person. making excuses. Uh, a normal, non-excuse making person. It's, it's hard to argue against a well-tuned, well-thought-out red-black list. I, it's not like you're going to have insane matchups across the board. You'll have a lot of 55% matchups, and I think that's what a lot of people are looking for when they take on an event like this. Red Black remains that. It will throughout the entirety of its time in Standard. If you carefully construct your list, have solid game plans against everyone, you can succeed with Red Black. Average person should probably still be playing Red Black. If you've rode that horse for this long, there's not a lot of reason to get off of it. If you enjoy the deck and, and that play style, stick with it. Fine choice for this weekend. I find it difficult to disagree with you. Yeah. It's not exciting. I mean, I don't think you're going to take anything by storm, but you could you could be the red red black player who top eights this tournament because there's going to be at least one. I promise you. So, yeah. All right. Question of the week. Let's do it. This question comes from Lexi in our Discord. 
I think there's a lot of different ways to to take this question, which is why I selected it. So the question is, how often should I rewatch my games and how much studying should I do away from the game, i.e. playing 70% of the time and studying 30% of the time? I've been finding this is very common in other competitive games such as Hearthstone, League of Legends, and poker. I love this question because it addresses something that I think a lot of Magic players do incorrectly. I mean, you can even tell by the vernacular used in describing the activity, jamming games, like just jam these two decks against each other. It doesn't matter what happens, just smash them against each other. And then magically by default, you will become a better Magic player. That does not work at all. And I think Lexi made some very astute observations that in other games, things tend to trend more towards the learning side of things. Poker and Hearthstone, both good examples. I approach Magic the same way. There's only very rare instances where I'm playing a lot of Magic. Most of my time is spent thinking about Magic, reading about Magic, discussing Magic, obviously. It's a a huge part of what I do. And I find all of those activities to have a lot more value. As far as the specific act of watching replays, I'm not super high on that. I think like if you're already making a mistake in the moment, you need to have some way to break that feedback loop. Like just making the same mistake and and watching the video of you making that mistake and not being able to recognize in that instance that you're making the mistake is obviously going to get you nowhere. There's times where you'll break out of a certain thought pattern and be like, oh, now I see what I did wrong. But I think it's more unlikely than people pretend. It's just if you're if you're inclined to think a certain way, you'll probably keep thinking that way. So why not get outside of your own bubble and go watch someone else play? You know, if you're planning on playing red black for this tournament, I think instead of watching your replays, you might be better served watching someone else play red black, uh, someone whose opinion you trust and know you'll play who will play the deck very well on the whole. Not enough studying, not enough thinking, not enough of these type of activities are being done in Magic. But there's also the point that like the same financial incentives don't exist in Magic as they do in these other pursuits that we're talking about. So a lot of times people just want to do what's fun. And it's more fun to just jam games than to sit down and study for most people. For most people. I think I would actually prefer in most cases to study and think about (laughs) Magic. But most people feel differently. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we're alone in that, I think. Well, not alone, but we're, we're in the minority, almost certainly. Most people just want to play games. Yeah. So that, that's kind of where I fall. I think there's, like you said, a lot of nuance to this question, a lot of ways to take it. But on the whole, I think that was a very astute observation and definitely something that a lot of players could do better. I'm very curious how many people play games of Magic and say they are as tuned in as Lexi is like Lexi is listening to the podcast in the discord, asking very well constructed, well thought out questions like this. How often is someone like that playing a game of magic and not realizing when they make mistakes? Uh, I mean, I think quite often I'm sure I make mistakes in almost every game I play and you know, I'm fairly plugged in and occasionally do well at magic. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's super easy to spot your mistakes all the time, even as a above average player, like the player you're describing right now. Yeah. So I guess kind of what I mean is how many people do you think are that tuned in and think that they or not think that they aren't making any mistakes, but can't see any mistakes that they're making? I think it's pretty easy for us to be like, oh, we 
you know, missequence this, or if we would have done this, these things could have happened, right? But I feel like there are so many people that play games, are trying to pay attention, and still walk away just not really learning anything. You know, maybe oh, not for sure. Maybe they're not saying like, oh, I play perfect, but they don't necessarily know what went wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an astute observation for sure. So how I would tackle this question, I think for each person specifically, it's just up to them. How how do they learn best? I think there are some players, Shahar, Adam Yurchik, uh, at one point I would kind of put Seth in this camp where they are so good at playing where you just you know, drop them into any game state. You, you, you put an opening seven in their hand and they just get it right. Like they understand what's important, how the game is going, it's et cetera. But then you ask them like why they did this thing on turn six. And they're like, I don't know. Yeah. No clue. Right. It's just like people learn magic and think about magic and everything in different ways. Like, I think that there are the people that are like us who are very studious and eventually get to a point through, learning and repetition where we just like kind of get it. And then there are the people who just inherently get it and cannot tell you why this thing is hundred percent correct. They just know it's correct. Right. So to that end, you, you have to know kind of what works well for you. And I, I would definitely recommend no matter who you are, some amount of playing mixed with some amount of studying. Right. Mm-hmm. But it also depends on how good the tools are that, you have the capability of studying, right? So if this were uh, the year 2000 and the only thing that existed was the dojo, you'd probably not get a whole lot out of it. But now you have uh, streams and you know YouTube videos and coverage and articles and all this nonsense. So you, sh- you should really have no excuse to not be able to study the topic that you want to study. And I think you will probably get about as much out of it as you want to. I I agree. There's enough quality content out there at this point that you can create your own study course with, you know, minimal searching. It'll be very easy to comprise a effective plan to learn basically whatever skills you want to learn. And it's just about what kind of effort you're willing to put into it. You know, I want to call back to what you were saying about the kind of instinctual player. Do you think that for that style of player, the correct quote unquote study course is just the jam games paradigm. Like all they need to do is just sit down and, and and play. And that's where they're actually getting value. I think so. I also think that, so this happens a reasonable amount with like pro tour testing teams where Seth will just win with every deck and win all the time in limited. And he's just so good that he skews the numbers. And this is not a joke. Like this literally happens. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just, you need to remove his results from the sample. You just do. Yeah, that's a pretty unreal level of performance. But, uh, you know, I've, I've certainly seen a lot of him and, and I, I buy it. And I, I have worked closely with those type of instinctual players in the past. And there's just something that they do very differently from what I do. So that's a good point to bring up. Everyone's going to be different and learn in separate ways. I think the intense study course is worth a lot. There's probably some people out there that it is just about the jamming games thing, but I I don't know. It it does feel like to some extent that kind of innate talent does a very good job at filtering itself to the top pretty quickly. Yeah, for Uh, sure. But the the problem is with diluting the the testing pool and everything, like diluting the results, 
it it makes it so choosing a deck is very difficult. So yeah. it, it's really easy to just like set yourself up for failure, right? It's like, oh, I was winning with this and I was winning with this and I was winning with this. It's like, well, how do you make a decision if you can't think through it rationally? It's like, yes, obviously you were winning with everything. It's like if I took four like good stock decks and did the opposite of what we were talking about before with Magic Online, where instead of like changing cards and trying to learn things, we just like jam stock decks, right? Like, yeah, we would win a decent amount with everything. And then how would we decide what to play? Yeah, that's true. You know, you need to do some amount of both and you need to be cognizant that results are in everything. And yeah, just be playing to learn and study to learn and take each one as far as you want to, as, as much as it'll help you. Like maybe playing helps people a lot because they get to see certain interactions and board states and everything. And then studying learns a lot because you get to see point of views that you wouldn't have otherwise had, right? Because you'd be in the mode where if you, you made a a play that was a mistake, but you don't realize that it's a mistake, you're just going to keep making it. So Mm -hmm. spot on magic is complicated. Totally agree. That's game. That's game. Good luck.